Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal. Or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life... Welcome to a podcast of perfectly platonic liaisons, but about dangerous movies. This is Be Real. It is a movie reviewing and reappraising podcast brought to you via the Playlist Podcast Network and brought to you by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. My name is Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. We're here today to talk about some literary adaptations. We always talk about movies three at a time, bound by something. And this time, we are talking about three that are all based on the same book. And Noah, as I texted you earlier, when we say things in French on this show, I want you to say them. (laughs) What is the name of the 1782 novel that all these movies uh, owe themselves to? Oh, God. Um, (laughs) Well, it's, it's... It's called Dangerous Liaisons oh, in man. French. Uh, you mean English? In English, yeah. Well, that's what it translates to in French. I'm not comfortable trying to say French. I failed French in college and in high school. So That's just a lot of French not to be able to say the name of this book. But it's, it's Dangerous Liaisons. Right, it's Dangerous Liaisons by Churdelos de Lacios, which sounds more, <laughs> sounds more like Spanish than... Hmm. But... Yeah, it's this novel written in the 18th century that is pretty uh, prepossessed by women and men and sex and That's consent right. and or the lack, lack of consent. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we are going to talk about Dangerous Liaisons, 1988, Stephen Frears movie. Uh, 1989's Valmont, which is a Milos Forman movie. And then 1999, the, the sort of topical occasion for this podcast is that Cruel Intentions, which adapts Dangerous Liaisons to then-present-day New York City, sort of a prep school scene. Cruel Intentions turns 20 this month, uh, and we're going to have Abby Bender return to the podcast later. She was a great guest uh, who talked to us about Wild Things last year. Um, so we've got her here for another sort of 90s teen erotic thriller. And though I haven't recorded that interview yet, she tells me she loves Dangerous Liaisons as well. So... We'll get into that in a bit. Um, can we talk about this book real quick, Noah, and sort of like why why a book that I don't really think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is like, you know, taught in lit classes necessarily sort of spawned all these things. It's like classic literature seeming. But I mean, it's like literary porn. You know, it's like one of these like libertine kind of French right. guys who's like and then the book was famously banned and then like when the king wanted a copy of it or whatever he like there's like the famous story of him like rebinding it with a different book so people wouldn't know that he like had it on the premises or whatever uh-huh. you know that kind of but it's it's a it's a it's like a dirty book right I think if you I was trying to do some like cursory research because of course I have not read it um 
But the way people talk about it in like a literary history and criticism sense sounds sort of akin to an erotic thriller directed by, say, Paul Verhoeven that we don't really know what to do with. It's not like a satire. It's not a critique. It's just sort of dark portrayal. It's a little vicious. It's a little evil. It's seemingly presented without editorial comment. And so people who are like, oh, this is like a classic, um, you know, indictment of the French aristocracy right before the French Revolution. It's like, no, actually it wasn't. Marie Antoinette liked the book. It was never even seen in a political light until afterward. So you can read a lot of things into it, but it's sort of the material in and of itself. And I think we're going to get into this is just confusing as it sits there being problematic in front of you. Right. Well, that's what I was texting you about earlier is that I feel like this movie so or these movies are so provocative and the story is so provocative, you know, at their base storytelling level. But these movies themselves are not terribly provocative in the way that they're filmed. So even mm. like these movies, maybe just the way the book was received, are not terribly political, I would say, movies. If right. a movie like this came out now, it would be fucking crazy right, what right. the response would be to it. But then that's surprising, and we can talk about that down the line too, but it's surprising that these movies haven't had more of a reckoning. So just to qu- catch up quickly, the novel is told completely uh, in an epistolary way, which is explains the obsession with letters in the two old, actually in all the movies. Um, every, it's all, everyone's always intercepting letters from another lover to to drum up scandal or to prove a point. Yeah, email really kills the tension of dangerous liaisons. So. <laughs> well, I, one of the things that holds up best about Cruel Intention is the line, email's just for geeks and pedophiles. Right. And did I say best? Because I meant not at all. But yeah, somebody makes a suggestion like, should we send an email? Like, fuck no. <laughs> Nobody uses email. Better get it in writing. Yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, you want to start with Cruel Intentions? Because that's you the one go, Oh, we're going to start. Nice. I watched this movie twice. Can I say that? You did? Yeah. I watched it with Nick White when I was in Columbus, Ohio this week. Hi, Nick. Hey, Nick. Thank you for watching Cruel Intentions with me. And every like 10 minutes or so going, oh my. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's worth that at least. Yeah. And then I watched it again this morning. Today's Sunday. Uh, Why? Because I like wanted to watch it again. And this time I found it a lot funnier. Than okay. I did the first time, because the first time I watched it was like, oh, God, like, what did we uncover here? So in Cruel Intentions, which is uh, 1999, and Roger Cumble is the uh, director. He's, you might also know him from, uh, from what, Just Friends and the Cruel Sweetest Intentions Thing. Cruel Intentions 2. Cruel some, Intentions 3. And some straight-to-video sequels to Cruel <laughs> Intentions. So, yeah, this takes the basic premise of two economically elite uh, evil people, in this case, a stepbrother and a stepsister uh, played Which by... is such an icky not thing from the novel. In the novel, they're just like former lovers. Right, right. And um, in this one, it's very quickly like, it's a little incesty, and it like loves that it. it's a little incesty. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the two, <laughs> the two people are Sebastian, played by Ryan Phillippe, and uh, Catherine, played by Sarah Michelle Geller. Uh, as is the case in all the movies that we're going to talk about today, they they quickly uh, make a bet, sort of involving a like a twofold um, 
sexual conquest task for um, the Valmont, the Sebastian Valmont character. He's only called Sebastian in this movie. Uh, the one is, uh, can he seduce this 15-year-old because she has... Um, it depends. In, in this one, she is just going out with the ex-boyfriend of the Sarah Michelle Geller character. Right. Um, and then the other half of that is... A uh, a conquest of the Valmont character's own design, which is can he also sleep with uh, a sort of Christian conservative woman who in the other period movies is married and her husband is away. And in this one, she's played by Reese Witherspoon and she's the headmaster's daughter who's published in a magazine that she's saving herself for marriage or whatnot. Um, or for true love. Right. So that's the setup here. You know, you could be a model. It's too bad you're not sexy. I can be sexy. You know what would be super duper sexy? If you lost all the clothes. Huh? I'm sick of sleeping with these insipid Manhattan debutantes. Nothing shocks them anymore. Well, you can relax. I have a mission for you. Why I Plan to Wait by Annette Hargrove. Paradigm of chastity and virtue. Introduce her to your world of sex, drugs, and... What else do you do? She's young, supple. She'll be my greatest victory. You don't stand a chance. Care to make a wager on that? If I win, then that hot little car of yours, mine. And if I win? I'll give you something you've been obsessing about ever since our parents got married. Happy hunting, Sebastian. Ciao. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of set in this, instead of the, uh, this, like, French royalty here, it's the, uh, sort of gossip girly in Upper East Side of Manhattan's, you know, uh, wealthy upper class, which is both, like, ahead of its time and also, like, in retrospect, having those other sort of maybe superior looks at like the upper like manhattan's tony upper east side you know seems a little pedestrian in retrospect but it makes some big swings i would say like especially and maybe most notably like in some amazing costume choices oh yeah what stood out do you want to start with those well these are all like costume dramas and they all sort of like desperately want to be something like the favorite but they definitely all fall far short, both in their sort of perversion and their laziness. Um, But this one, because it's set in something they're trying to synthesize as being this French let them eat cake kind of 1%, he like is, Ryan Felipe is always wearing these like really long coats or like (laughs) form fitting, like double breasted suits and just like driving around in his convertible from like the 1950s. Let's talk about where should we start with this? Well, can we like go through a little bit of the plot and that'll kind of take us to these question mark moments, shall we say that I like feel are integral to discussing these movies. Go ahead. So, as Chance sort of set up, one of the gambits that they're running is can Ryan Philippi, Felipe, I like Felipe, it just has more like pizzazz to it. So that's what I I'm going to say. <laughs> Even though it's Philippi. That's, that's correct. Okay. Ryan Felipe has to Felipe. break up 
Jerry O'Connell's brother. Did you think for like two seconds the way Tara Reed is in this movie for no reason and like still like the yes. third build woman? <laughs> um, that it was Jerry. I thought that guy looked like Jerry, yes, but I didn't Well, it's his brother, Charlie O'Connell. All right. Anyway, when breaking them up, he's like putting himself in situations where he's encouraging her to like drink to excess and then you know take off her clothes by like nagging her about being sexy yes and these are like in 2019 pretty cringy moments that are played for laughs in this like wannabe transgressive 10 things i hate about you kind of setup Uh uh-huh there's like one thing accepting 50 bucks to like take out cat but there's a whole other thing about like giving selma blair a Long Island iced tea and then taking illicit photographs of her and then forcing yourself on her orally. She's very game as a performer in this. Right. And is like buying into the comedy that the movie gives her. Like, I mean, God bless her, but that a, a lot of the, both Cecile and uh, Annette Hargrove, who's the Torvel, uh, the Reese Witherspoon character, are like really underdone and the movie does itself no favors by like it doesn't give them like doesn't give them any moral victories down the stretch either like we're sort just of. laughing at yeah. what a ditz cecile is the whole I time mean, cecile right? kind of gets what she wants in the end but at the same time the cecile character like always buys in and then is sort of in love with him right we're sort of seeing him as her sexual piano teacher, harp teacher, whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a very, and like, but that's what the novel calls for. Like, that's what the novel is interested, that relationship of that, like, sexual teacher in that old man. But that, in 2019 of all times, is so creepy. Right. Well, okay, so we'll get to my big thing of this movie right now. In Dangerous Liaisons, There is no point in that movie where you think that the John Malkovich portrayal of Valmont is anything more or less than a monster. Top to front, he may be a monster being used to different ends by different people who thinks he's in control, but maybe he's not. Um, But this movie, the critical difference is that at some point, the movie decides that Sebastian has had a turn. Right. That he's now in... Um, and then, unfortunately, he is positioned as the hero of the movie. Yes. yes. And it really does not work, especially. It's not, and it too, it's not just that like there are ancillary um, sexual things that haven't aged well. This movie forces you to look at the Sebastian character, who it believes is at the center of the movie and like is worth some redeeming, and is like, well, what do you think? Has he been redeemed? And I don't think so, nor do I think enough changes in the Philippi performance um, to prove that. Well, that's what I find so crazy about all these movies is they all have an audience member sort of the suspension of disbelief is that at some point the Valmont character falls for the Annette Hargrove, uh, whatever we're going to call her character, the the sort of detached virgin Right. And that leads to this like change of heart by the Valmont character and that like their love somehow the ends of that justifies the means of him being like like a total fucking scumbag for like right. the preceding 10 15 years. 
And then he becomes, especially in Cruel Intentions, by, like, his journal somehow, like, outing this subculture of, like, men behaving badly or something. But it's still, like, wink the woman's fault. Yeah. Somehow that makes him the hero of this one, which is crazy. This movie is by far the guiltiest of that sort of unearned kind of gross turn. Because when is the moment that sebastian and annette fall in love in this movie because i watched it twice and i can't tell you like where that turn of like leave me alone you're creepy into but i love you you know what i think it is and i think this makes it even worse because it's one of the more uh just poorly acted moments of the movie it's where she's making the faces at him in the car and he's like oh yeah oh you're making me laugh oh i'm feeling you're making me laugh, and this is this is the real me all of a sudden. But it's, and it's so unearned because it's after a moment of him being honest, but being honest that he like doesn't like anyone other than himself. Like right. that's not a a turn of any kind. It's that he's been called out in this like long con that he just did over two hours, like convincing this old woman that they'd played backgammon. Yeah. It's unfortunate because I think that in this vein we're talking about, the Philippi performance is both the best and worst thing about the movie. The first 45 minutes, he is doing this sort of like heartthrob mixed with like Jim Carrey overacting. He's like this agent of kind of snotty satire in the beginning yes. with, this, with the psychiatrist who's like also hawking her book And what um, does that scene him. have to do with anything? Like it doesn't even come back. Like, it doesn't have that? anything to do with anything. But it's also the only scene that sort of like intimates that this whole world is bullshit. Like the movie forgets to keep doing that. But, like, the therapist isn't even that bad of a woman. Like, why did he do that to Tara Reid? He, like, posted revenge porn of her because, like, he didn't like the marketing campaign for her, like, (laughs) self-help book. Is that the takeaway there? I guess. Um, She was overcharging. Even (laughs) as as bad as he is, like, it's pretty magnetic. And for the first 40 minutes, I was like asking that question that I think people have been asking about Ryan Philippi for 20 years. It's like, how did this guy's star not pan out? Um, well, I think, yeah, it was funny cause I was watching it with Lucy and she's like, who's this guy? And I'm like, Ryan Philippi. And she was like, who? So I right. think like only after a certain age, like Ryan Philippi, I mean, now he's on like shooter or whatever. Right. And he's like done some like adult crimey stuff, but yeah. he did not pan out the way. Well, none of these guys did. No. Do you think him and, like, Freddie Prinze Jr. and, like, Josh Hartnett, like, all get together and watch their old movies? And I think that's a good trio. Um, they always watch Hollywood Homicide last, and they're like, oh, we have to go. We don't have time for Hollywood Homicide tonight. But Harrison Ford's in it. <laughs> yeah. Harrison Ford was in Firewall, too. Josh, we'll see you later. Um, <laughs> so, so, yeah, his performance. It's my Mosquito for- Coast. His performance to me is the thing that jumps out the most, which is crazy because Reese fucking Witherspoon is in this movie. Uh, but then, yeah, there's no turn. There's no point where he starts to act any differently than like somebody who was purely manipulative. And all of a sudden it's like, did I miss the part where he stopped manipulating? It's very unfortunate. But you have to agree, though, that there is just like sizzling sexual chemistry between him and both Sarah Michelle Gellar and Reese Witherspoon, who parenthetically he married after the production right. of this movie, and dated right. or in was involved with for like seven or eight years, and they have like two or three kids. That's right. But like, there is a certain snap, crackle, pop to every time that like he's in a position with another of the female leads. I would agree with that. Um, unfortunately, though, I just I think here let's uh, 
let's roll me into another problem, is that in much the same way the movie decides on a whim that Sebastian is normal and redeemed and as a you know righteous and loves this person this movie which is set up to sell itself via such sexual kinks to the point that there's like that uh you know iconic to some people like weird fucking incesty dry humping scene and then the movie's just like nah actually uh this isn't a movie about sexual kinks it's like it's a pretty normal movie you guys with like a pretty normal teen ending uh, it's like 10 a, things i hate about you but based on this fucked up seven, uh, 18th century french novel commit to the bit like this was a movie where step siblings were gonna have sex like don't don't but they don't end up having sex like in dangerous liaisons the underlying ip but they all and they all have that kind of interesting setup well let me ask you like a bigger question too and that's maybe how we can kind of create a rubric for how to judge these weird and fucked up sexual tales let's do it um is what do you think of the main like female antagonist character, you know, and like what does she have to do to be an effective and entertaining like force on screen? Like you wanted to talk about like Annette Benning versus Glenn Close, but let's throw SMG here in the ring and be like, what is what makes a good in this Catherine Murtoy? Uh huh. I I don't know. I maybe I turn this one over to you. I, I'm confused by this one. Because in a weird way, I mean, none of these movies like feel super real, um, but because she's just 17 and all these kids are just supposed to be like 15, 16, 17, um, her character as a manipulator doesn't make that much sense to me. Doesn't make as much sense as the other two to me who feel like they've lived life and have some position in this society. Well, yeah, I mean, the underlying character is supposed to be a widow and having, like, the sort of, you know, callous exterior that would allow, an interior that would allow for this sort of behavior. But in this one, she just sort of has that monologue where she's like, so I've slept with a couple of guys. Like, I'm still the best at, you know, putting on a smile and making sure everyone loves me kind of thing. And there is that sort of wisdom from the resentment that society throws at her. But at the same time, there's something so strange with the ending of this movie where it becomes, I don't quite understand the ending, frankly, and we can spoil it now because this movie's 20 years old. Yeah. So what happens is like Ryan Phillippe's uh, Valmont's journal gets released to the public of the school. Uh, and they're all like, they all then look to her and be like, Sarah Michelle Geller, what did you do? You did a, like a reasonable amount of cocaine? Like, what the <laughs> fuck? You're the reason he's dead. Which doesn't right. make like a ton of sense. Because you're supposed to know that she was part of, the, and there's that great scene, we'll get to it, uh, Dangerous Liaison, where they all like hiss at her at the opera. Yeah. Like, that's fabulous. But this one is just kind of like, and of course it has that iconic uh, bittersweet symphony. Uh, oh my God, the bittersweet symphony. So, the verve of this movie. The verve. Is it the verve pipe or the verve? Just I can the never verve. remember. It's just the verve. It's a bittersweet symphony. So I don't quite think that the last comic note in this movie stands and thus kind of like undoes the spell of this character. But I kind of like the idea of having this sassy, coke-doing 17-year-old who is so pissed that Charlie O'Connell 
is dating Selma Blair instead of her, that she creates this game and then she creates the game on top of the game mm. and she's like actually i just want to like ruin my stepbrother's life right i think the quote in this movie is i don't fuck losers i don't fuck losers <laughs> that is a great are you for real and of course that the movie has that incredible them making out in central park scene yeah. That's that's iconic. Do you remember when they made fun of like half of this movie and its self-seriousness in Not Another Teen Movie? Oh, yeah. What a pervy movie that was. Right. Yeah. There's a, I think there... I'll put it this way. There are a lot of things that work about this movie if you're not paying any attention. And as soon as you start to pay attention, <laughs> they don't work anymore. Um, which I think, unfortunately, on this, on this rewatch, if we could like move a little bit more toward a rating... Um, well, let's. Why don't we explain the rating system real quick, and then figure out uh, what this movie means twenty years later, or if it should be left in the past. There is no ambiguity on Be Real. All movies can and will be classified by one of our four ratings: good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to sheer artistry. The second is pure entertainment. Good Good is easy to explain. It's a movie that engages your inner art critic and brings you some form of happiness. For both reasons, you want to watch that movie again. Think Shawshank Redemption or Jurassic Park. (laughs) Or more recently, Get Out and Lady Bird. That we know of yet. Good Good movies make Noah hyperbolically say, That was the best movie I've ever seen. Bad Bad is easy, too. Movies that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just spent two hours wishing you could watch something else. Think of any musician-turned-actor who gave it a go in a Nicholas Sparks adaptation. I'll pass. Or many Nicholas Cage movie where he plays a wizard or a warrior. You are going to be a force for good and a very important sorcerer. Bad Bad movies make chance say, I hate so much that you made me watch that. Now, good, bad movies. Those we recognize as worthwhile in a cinematic sense, but don't necessarily enjoy. Think Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, or Awards Bait that hinges on a historical figure delivering an impassioned speech. I have given you my soul. Leave me my name! These kinds of movies make Noah say, But it was so boring. And then I remind him that at least Leo finally got his Oscar for crawling through all that mud. Conversely, bad good movies feed your thoughtless inner child. They're anything from flawed but charming Nancy Myers outings. I'm miraculously done being in love with you! To late career missteps like Al Pacino and Danny Collins. They're loud and silly, like Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China or Stargate. It's all in the reflexes. Bad good movies make me want to watch Tombstone, especially when Noah says... But didn't the Mighty Ducks just give you that warm holiday feeling? Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear two friends who watch movies for very different reasons talk about their taste like it's God's own truth. I'm kind of troubled by this movie, as we've indicated, nor do I think it has, like, a lot of the, um... It's missing... It's missing both, like, the the insanity of some of the performances, the movie is missing that in and of itself. There was a moment I wanted to single out at the end where the headmaster takes away Sarah Michelle Gellar's cocaine cross that she wears around (laughs) her neck. And for a moment, I was like, the truly sort of satirical, crazy version of this movie is that he sneers at her and then like does a bump himself because that's the world we're living in. Or like puts it in his pocket for later or something. (laughs) 
that was the thing i was like i don't these movies don't work if you don't understand the cultural surroundings. And this movie didn't have that sealant. It didn't have that like idea, that American psycho thing of like, in this world, this world is full of absurdity because like the money locks everyone in. Um, and I just didn't feel that. The turn toward, hello, teenage audience from 1999, I need you to think Ryan Phillippe is really hot. I need you to want to go see Reese Witherspoon in Legally Blonde in two years. I need you to like this movie, Normal Children in Kansas. Um, the, the, that, those are the things that undoes, like, if you're going to be a fucked up movie, just be a fucked up movie. I'm going to give it a bad bad. I see that. And I think that's my problem with all three of these movies is that like, you know, as we said in the open, they've got like dirty ideas behind them, but they're not like dirty. They're not made dirtily. Like they don't have mm. for me. Like I was like, what does this movie look like if Terry Zwigoff does it? Like, what if it's the bad Santa of this? And like, there are no morals on top of the morals. There's, yeah. there's just nothing. And I think it's a better movie. But I think this has that kind of like quick talking, like Kevin Williamson script kind of 90s teen soap opera vibe that I just go nuts for. Mm -hmm. So it scratched that itch. I'll give it a bad good. I think that's fair. Um, I think you can also see in a lot of the really basic comedy of the movie why people keep wanting to like readapt this and keep doing this you know like with the spin-offs or with the musical or with like the the network show that never got off the ground there are those things of like you know uh Catherine's brushing Cecile's hair and then Cecile asks sort of a question about Sebastian and Catherine <laughs> she like, just pulls, pulls her hair. It, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just like, oh, these are very basic uh, comedy kind of like, ooh, that's a mean comedy beat that I think or have universal appeal when it comes to teenage entertainment. It's just the other stuff that the movie doesn't know how to reckon with or apologize for or appropriately not apologize for. Well, to shed light on just what to do with Cruel Intentions 20 years after its initial release, um, our conversation with Abby Bender is coming up. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means that you can write and paint, write and design, and write and make a film. You can also write and write. Look for their MFA faculty member Tom Barbash's novel, The Dakota Winters, out from Echo. And their alum, Adam Nemet, and podcast favorites, We Can Save Us All, out now from Unnamed Press. For more information, open an internet browser and type in www.cca.edu slash writing MFA. She is a writer whose work has appeared in The Village Voice, Washington Post, Time Out New York, and a score of other places. Uh, she's also a great Twitter follow if you're into either fashion or erotic thrillers or both, two areas of expertise that should help us on today's podcast. We're super happy to have Abby Bender returning to the program. Abby, what's up? Hi. Um, well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed revisiting this insane film. I'm Think, I'm glad that that was your <laughs> reaction. Uh, so yeah, it's rather than talk about Wild Things' 21st anniversary, let's talk about Cruel Intentions' 20th. Um, how you said you rewatched it last night? Yeah. What What was your mental state going in and going out? Well, I guess I sort of was thinking back to when I first saw it, which 
was as a teenager. And I remember at the time that I first watched it, like, kind of enjoying it, but also just being annoyed by it, uh-huh. which I I kind of still was in some ways, but I think I also, because I've seen more films in that sort of erotic thriller-ish genre and sort of have more of an understanding of some of the tropes that they might have been referencing, I think I ultimately liked liked it better. It's interesting um, thinking about it like a sort of then and now approach in terms of when the movie came out, because I definitely could not see it being released today. Right. So... It's so absurdly over the top. Yeah, I mean, if you want to talk about, like, you know, toxic men or whatever, oh my god, like, Ryan Felipe is, yeah. like, just a horrible, a horrible person on every level. I think we do have to talk about it. It was a lot of what Noah and I talked about when we recorded the show. Um, because we, so, we did all these movies that are based on the Dangerous Liaisons book. And, of course, then all the movies are premised on like sexual conquest in some cases of a of a girl like a 15 year old girl um so none of that like is the premise for a movie that would come out today but yeah it was one I was you're a fan within a a fan and a, and a scholar within a genre of um movies that push the boundaries of sexual politics all the time so like yeah what in your mind like what do we do with uh oh Valmont's getting a 15 year old drunk and then having his way with her what do we what do we do with that well i think part of what's so interesting about erotic thrillers is that it's a very like self-consciously adult genre Mm. Um, and i think i talked about this when i was on before and we discussed wild things you don't see that many of them that take place among this high school milieu so when they do there's always like this extra edginess built into them because like when you think of uh you know sharon stone in basic instinct she is like very much a 30 something woman who has like been around the block who has like has you know picked up so much from her life experience that's what's kind of cool about her character she's yeah she's a grown-ass woman um (laughs) then with this it's like it almost at times feels like you're watching these teen characters playing adults Mm -hmm. and version of adults that isn't really that much like how adults act in reality it's like this very this very bizarre mannered conceptual depiction of adulthood like i just feel like the way that um that Catherine and oh my god why am i suddenly forgetting ron felipe's character's name that's Uh, embarrassing sebastian yes Catherine and sebastian like the way they talk to one another it's like it sounds like they're in like this, like they're almost like they're in a play or something. Yeah. Like very obvious that they're performing. The whole idea of like the erotic thriller and it being heightened, it does give them some leeway to explore that as part of the genre. But at the same time, it does feel like a bit of a ridiculous watch at times. Especially, I also find um, Selma Blair's performance is really weird. I don't know what she's doing in this movie. She's like just falling over and making these weird faces. And obviously our sympathies are kind of with her in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's like the fact that she gets pushed off a bed like multiple times and is just like, <laughs> oh, hey, this is cool. Awesome. Yeah. It's, it's a little strange that the, the clearest victim is also the clearest comic relief. Um, 
that's not what happens to like Uma Thurman and Dangerous Liaisons. That's not her character's positioning at all. Yeah. Um, and what did you think of that? Um, I mean, I I didn't have time to rewatch that one, but I do love that movie. Yeah. The, cost- the costumes in it are amazing and like the colors and everything. I was quite taken with it. Uh, Noah was not. Um, but I've, I found kind of what you're talking about, like, even though there is a certain like blatant unreality to American actors getting all dressed up <laughs> in fancy rooms and, you know, sparring with each other in just like virtuosic, unreal dialogue. There's something about like Close and Malkovich where they, you're right, they, they feel old. We talk about this on the show. It's like they... They're in their 30s. They exist outside of this kind of like French system of getting married for money when you're 17. Um, And so their bitterness and like sadism kind of feels real. And I don't know if it makes sense in the same way in Cruel Intentions. Talk to me about how you you love Dangerous Liaisons. Um, I haven't seen it for a while, so I would have to revisit. But I yeah, I like it a lot. I feel like... um... The John Malkovich part is definitely perfect for him because he's just <laughs> he's just always so creepy. Yes, very much. <laughs> I love so. I love seeing a young a young Uma Thurman. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and I remember um, a critic friend of mine I think described that movie once as being in the genre of slutty period pieces. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I love that description. Um, and yeah, I mean, I love any you know a period piece of like isn't you know isn't stuffy and is like very juicy like that is it's fun you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i'm curious abby at the very top you mentioned when you watched cruel intentions however many years ago you remember being a little annoyed by it and maybe you still were what what was the irritating aspect for you well i think part of it is a personal thing for me where um (laughs) because i actually even though they there's really barely any schooling in the film whatsoever um Uh i i grew up in manhattan and i went to a private school that my dad taught at Mm -hmm. so it was kind of you know slightly unconventional circumstances but i think that i've just always for like most of my life had a chip on my shoulder when it comes to depictions of wealthy manhattan teens and private schools and stuff because i was always just had this idea where i was like these are the people who are being rude to me and who would judge me Uh, interesting Um, yeah, a lot of it comes from a personal, just like sort of, what would be the word? Just being a little bit defensive or a little prickly about that stuff. And I think also I had seen it shortly after watching Wild Things for the first time. Uh, and I think that those movies were sort of considered in like a similar vein, even though I hadn't seen a lot of erotic thrillers at that point. And um, I just like enjoyed Wild Things so much more. Mm-hmm. Um, first time i watched it that i was a little bit let down no sebastians or Catherines in your personal new york private school experience i mean nobody nobody that over the top but like there was definitely you know there were there were a lot of people who were very bitchy <laughs> uh-huh. sure no nothing nothing quite at that level <laughs> let me ask you because this is one we, Abby, I feel like we just needed another set of eyes on. Noah and I were both confused about how Cruel Intentions handles the turn of the Sebastian character. Like, the movie seems to believe that he is using and using and using and using, like, up to a point, And then 
all of a sudden it's like the real him. A net or life or something has has broken through. But I found that kind of hard to discern like where how that was happening. Did you have a read on that? Um yeah, I mean I agree. I feel like it is a little bit difficult to buy because he's just been so sort of unrepentantly a scumbag for the entire movie. Mm-hmm. And I also think on some level, even though um, with Reese Witherspoon's character, who I will say I think is probably gives the most comparatively, you know, naturalistic and maybe the best performance in the film. Um, (laughs) But I also find it kind of hard to believe that she would fall for him. I mean, on some level, it's like, okay, yeah, the bad boy, whatever. But he's just... Oh my god. He he just I feel like he's so annoying to her for the whole movie. Sure. Sure. Like he's, he's seducing her. He's just so I mean, it's something that is like maybe if you're supposedly an innocent teen, maybe it would, you know, be romantic to you in some ways, but watching this movie now I'm just like, "Oh my god, this guy just sucks." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in pretty much every conceivable way. Um Reese, you're too you're too good for him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, you know what? Let me bounce this one off you too, Abby, since you mentioned having some, some real life experience in the, in the, in the heightened crazy setting of this movie. Um, <laughs> I think the movie, at least on its face is trying to make some plays at like, just like reputation politics, right? At, at every turn of the plot, it's just like, well, you, don't do that because it will ruin your reputation or I'll hold this over you or I'll intercept your letters and release them in a sort of like public burn book or whatever. Um, is Does reputation in your experience like rule quite so much uh, in that setting? It does in some ways. I mean, for me, it definitely did because people before they knew who I was as a person, they would think of me as being the teacher's daughter. Mm-hmm. So I feel like in a way that was like a re- that sort of almost came but ended up coming before any sort of reputation that would be more you know traditional or more associated with these kind of movies yeah so i think that people do i mean you know especially in general people who are wealthy they do care a lot about this stuff and it's just stuff like obviously given that the movie is a loose adaptation it goes way way back um so yeah i think there is something to that but then the movie just sort of uh you know, turns the volume up to 11 on it, as it were. Yeah. Do you feel like Cruel Intentions is an erotic thriller? Are you comfortable with uh, situating it in or around that genre? I would say yes, because it does have a lot of the elements. You know, it has the femme fatale. It has a lot of... I was actually thinking also in terms of... um, Because, like, the fashion in it is really fun. And I love how... um. Sarah Michelle Gellar dresses in like these like black widow noir outfits. Uh It's very, especially seeing that sort of iconic scene with her and Selma Blair where they kiss. Um, and how Selma Blair is in this like little preppy, like a pastel plaid skirt and a little short sleeved, like pink shirt or something. I don't remember the exact color, but she's just wearing like these very light colors. It looks like something a kid could wear. And then Sarah Michelle Gellar has, like, the big hat, the sunglasses, you know, she's <laughs> laser, she's, like, a bustier, she's, like, all black. It's really funny because it's, like, this very, very obvious coding of the differences of the two characters. Like, 
it's a type of thing where you don't even really have to care as much about on-screen fashion as I do in order to see how clearly these differences are being established. Yeah. Um, and I think that um, half the characters are in an erotic filler are very aware of that. Uh-huh. And then they're not. And um, I think there's implicitly a tension with the idea of them being all teenagers. But certainly, um, certainly Catherine has a lot of in common with um, some of these previous manipulative, bad, but still fun to watch from Fatals that we've seen in other movies that are more explicitly within this genre. So I would say it is an erotic thriller with qualifications. It also comes fairly late in that cycle of movies being from 1999. Yeah. That's such an interesting, I like that, that idea that like, it's, yeah, it's an erotic thriller, but like maybe some of the characters aren't, aren't actually in one, but some are. And I wonder if maybe the, the thing is that like, the Sebastian character like exits the erotic thriller genre in like the last half hour of the movie. And it becomes like an oddly like moral film. Does that seem right? Sort of. I mean the whole, and you know, the whole ending with his death with the car crash is, I mean, it's, (laughs) it's a bit hard to buy, you know, the way these things come to a head in such a dramatic way in broad daylight. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but I do love the actual, you know, the final scene and um, seeing Reese Witherspoon drive off with the journal is really fun and I think very satisfying. But, but yeah, there's only really like a few films that could qualify as erotic thrillers and also as teen movies. I feel like this one is almost kind of a soap opera. Mm, yeah. Like there's definitely some... DNA of those like really you know overly dramatic teen shows of the time and slightly after like some of these like you know these devious rich kid things it's like stuff you see in you know the OC or something like that Gossip Girl same kind of setting which I never watched for the reasons I mentioned before uh-huh. <laughs> these Upper East Side private school people <laughs> and that one would have been like contemporary almost to you being yeah. there so no, I avoided that show like the plague. <laughs> Another reason not to see it, yeah. Um, I want to go back to the fashion for a second. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm barely equipped to describe these, but talk to me about the Sarah Michelle Gellar's sort of, um, like, the, the, the orangish, like, lingerie top, like, connecting to the pantsuit. How would you classify that look? Oh, I think it might be a bustier. Oh, okay, there you go. A lot of work, not an outfit. <laughs> most um teen girls would be wearing certainly sure i mean well if you have to like take meetings from like nine to noon with all the people you're manipulating um uh, maybe it's worth it yeah <laughs> uh and how about the we were also having a laugh at ryan Phillippe's like full length black trench coat over black shirt and black pants and noah <laughs> wisely pointed out that school has not started yet so it's probably like august 1st or something as he's walking around in this number what did you think of that one yeah, I mean, he just, it's funny also because I feel like his style has not aged as well because he's like got kind of like the bad 90s hair and like those yeah. like sort of unflattering small glasses. Mm-hmm. And he just really kind of looks like a fuckboy. Yeah. That's... <laughs> as they would call it these days. Um, yeah, I feel like that's sort of his sort of like 90s, like trying to be sleek. Yep. Um, but almost kind of boy bandish fashion 
what has definitely not aged as well what makes for bad 90s hair is it the fact that it always like looks a little wet because there's too much gel in it or what too gelled and too like done uh-huh oh i i've just realized I, I didn't say this but i think another thing that initially made me wary of um cruel intentions was being a huge buffy the vampire slayer fan oh and being like sarah michelle geller what are you doing right this isn't right don't go down this path yeah because i mean she's just so like her sort of wittiness and skill and all of these qualities are just you know in buffy she's so likable and she's so much more of a dimensional character ultimately yeah she doesn't have one dimension of being evil <laughs> right something that i was thinking was pretty interesting was and i'm sure other people have commented on this but this idea of like the cycle of teen movies that were kind of adopt adapting classic literature and making it modern yeah time. we did that we did a whole podcast about that you've got clueless you got 10 things Mm-hmm. And then isn't there even that one with like Amanda Bynes from like the early 2000s? Like, oh, she's, she's the man. I think that's yeah, that's like a Shakespeare adaptation. I think, I think. it's Twelfth Night. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then there's even like the Baz Luhrmann Romeo and Juliet kind of fits into that. Oh right. I suppose a really late one too would be Easy A is doing Hawthorne, but that's like almost that's ten years sort of later. But yeah, what do you make of that like grouping? It's interesting because. I feel like part of what annoys me about a lot of teen movies is that I feel like a lot of teen films will just sort of assume that their audience is really stupid, which is like not always the case and make everything very obvious and very moral. So I feel like if you're doing these kind of literary adaptations, that kind of gives you an edge in terms of like, Oh, maybe these, this audience isn't so stupid because they can sort of, you know, they can take in, these literary themes and I like that idea of showing how they're universal in a way like I like that trend I would like more movies like that sure is there a is there a book or a text or anything that you could toss out that you'd like to see adapted well it seems like the obvious one would has there been like a like a teen movie Gatsby version it seems like that would just be a gimme for Hollywood yeah you're right that's a layup (laughs) Yeah, now that I'm thinking about it, it's like, wait, is there, like, some teen movie that, like, did that that was, like, really obvious that I'm not thinking of? But I don't think so. It's interesting that you brought up Gatsby, because I wonder if you would sort of, like, instead of going back to the 18th century, could you, like, cycle forward into the next period of sort of decadence, which might be, like, the 20s? I mean, could you sort of mount a, you know, whoever Sarah Michelle Gellar today as like sort of like a Dorothy Parker voice and just do like a bunch of like snotty elite 1920s lit. Yeah. I mean, I think that would be really fun. Yeah. Um, oh, also I wanted to ask, have, cause I haven't seen it, but have you seen, cause I was doing some research. Have you seen the director video cruel, cruel intentions too? <laughs> no, ma'am. <laughs> I have not seen. I'm so curious because Apparently, Amy Adams is the star in Sarah Michelle Gellar's part. Really? And I cannot picture that at all. It's one of her first roles. That doesn't seem... Seems like she would be the Cecile character. Yeah, I know. But it's so funny. She's like the bad girl. And I was... The trailer and I was like, what the hell? Well, Abby, I think we can leave it there unless you have any other thoughts. But thanks so much for for rewatching a ridiculous film and for chatting about it. It was a pleasure to catch up with you. Oh, yeah. No, my pleasure. I'm always 
I'm always here to talk about some trashy 90s teens and movies with erotic thriller elements. So thank you for having me. Well, cheers. Let's get on to 1988's Dangerous Liaisons, a Stephen Frears movie starring Glenn Close, John Malkovich, Michelle Pfeiffer, Uma Thurman. It's quite a cast. Um, and Keanu Reeves. Let's talk about this Stephen Frears, who has directed approximately 7,500 feature <laughs> films in his yeah. career. Yet I like don't know what like a Stephen Frears movie looks like. I, like, I, mo- I know movies directed by Stephen Frears, but... I don't know. What does that mean? I think as I was looking at his IMDb today, you're right. But if you look at it, you can see why he's interested in this kind of movie. He made The Queen. He made that a very English scandal. Uh, he made another movie, uh, that Mary Riley, that Julia Roberts, John Malkovich, uh, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of fucked up romance. Oh, I didn't He know is that very one. interested. He did High Fidelity. That's true. See, that doesn't go with the theory, though. Uh, but he is interested in... Uh, intrigue and sort of like what goes on in those those halls that none of us can gain access to he's interested in this kind of thing um yeah and he's also interested in maybe the tie to high fidelity is that he's interested in grudges and people who have been spurned i've always known i was born to dominate your sex and avenge my own is there anything i could do to help Come back when you've succeeded with Madame de Torvel. Yes. And I will offer you a reward. My love. I have this appalling reputation. Yes, I have been warned about you. What is true of most men is doubly so of him. So this is one of the three that most closely resembles the book from Is from that right? Did you yes. verify that? I did. Um, it's pretty close. Valmont is w- much different, and obviously Cruel Intentions is set in 1999 um, and in America. <laughs> um, the thing with this movie, and like this is a place to start. Let's start here. The Glenn Close and Malkovich characters are sadists outright. They are, you know, they are like cultural anarchists in this like Louis the Sixteenth Marie Antoinette sort of like time of um, toxic opulence in France. Yep. There's no point in the movie where they are anything less than awful. There's never that Ryan Philippi turn of like, oh, I, you know, I really do think Malkovich could be a good guy and could be redeemed at the end of the day. You didn't feel, though, there was a turn when he's giving the it is beyond my control speech when he's like crying there. I think there's like a, a dramatic turn. Yes, but I didn't feel that that scene was intended to make me feel differently about him. It was intended to show like the next and final step of havoc he could wreak with the Pfeiffer character and show the power of close over him. Yeah. Yeah, this one he's such a puppet to her. Right. He's really like the the mountain or something. She just Dude, and I was I was like, this this uh Marquis character from Close is so Cersei Lannister esque. Yeah, it really is Cersei Lannister with, and then watching like the mountain go on little missions to like, right. you know, it's a uh, dirty rotten scoundrels the hell out of these poor virgins who were right. just trying to fit in. 
What do you think of, I think when you were also rating these movies, we need to consider the, how much of like a sexual competitor, the music teacher ultimately becomes. So talk about him in cruel intentions. Yeah. So Sean Patrick Thomas plays like the, the piano teacher, or the, no, the cello teacher. It's always a stringed instrument. Love that. Mm -hmm. And hands. Yeah, and he's the one who actually has, like, uh, genuine feelings for the Cecile character. But in Cruel Intentions, it's also sort of an interesting play on the systemic racism prevalent in the predominantly white 1% on the Upper East Side. But in this one, it's fucking Keanu Reeves, who's, like, just fresh off of uh, Bill and Ted. Yeah. It's... Watching him in this movie... I really wondered, like, why did Keanu Reeves, of all people, kept keep getting put in these European period pieces like Dracula and Much Ado <laughs> About Nothing, and just all these things where he start he cannot do the Keanu English accent is just a an abomination. <laughs> I'm afraid I love your daughter. Um, it's not good. <laughs> no, it's pretty terrible. Right, and it just it makes it so hilarious that like ultimately glenn close sort of uses him as the sexual pawn to like send john malkovich over the edge there's that uh, over the edge there's that turn in all three of the movies where and sometimes it's played for suspense like it is in valmont but in this one in cruel intentions it's sort of like this like boink kind of moment where (laughs) he comes in and sees that glenn close the object of like this whole charade right uh is is making love to Keanu Reeves, Chevalier, Dancenay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think another thing I really appreciate about this one that makes these monsters feel like real monsters is the age of the characters. Sure. Uh, Glenn Close and John Malkovich are probably 36. You have this feeling that in this world of, you know, you know, selling off young people into arranged marriages for their sexual and financial ripeness. Um, these two are like dried up. And as they get closer and closer in this like war of attrition, um, they may be all the other has. And I really feel there's an encroaching feeling of desperation that um, doesn't humanize them, but it just makes them intriguing it explains something glenn close has a lot of great explaining speeches in this movie about like why i do what i do i like that point and in this it's like i think uma thurman is the best cecile if we can be honest um because then she does come out of her shell sexually and you see like how outmatched these old people suddenly are when you have like two Keanu Reeves and Uma Thurman like yeah I mean it's still disturbing what he does to Uma Thurman but also like but this is the only movie that lets you know it's disturbing she and Michelle Pfeiffer in their sexual encounters with the Malkovich character are horrified they're traumatized um the night where he comes like knocking on her door the second time she looks like she's trying to escape from like a a slasher villain that's trying to break down her door so at least the movie has the good sense to be like look at what this guy is wrought like this is this is yes. these women there're no bones about it for them this is horrifying um and then on the other side of it instead of being played for comedy yeah it's kind of like a dark pygmalion thing 
Like, I will just make you in the image of these, like, uh, movers and shakers of the courts who um, have no morals whatsoever. Can we talk about Glenn? You and I have talked a lot about Glenn in recent weeks, both on the podcast and off. Yeah, Chance got mad at me. I accused him of some things, and we got into a little quarrel, but we're fine All because I didn't like the wife. All because Chance didn't like the wife, which I thought was pretty great. I thought this Glenn Close playing the sort of... um, fatal attraction glenn close of the era is a little contrived yeah and not as compelling as like i thought her her sort of verbal back and forth volleying is stronger in a movie like the wife than in this where it's just like give me a hearty monologue and i'm just gonna tear it to pieces she's got a lot of good back and forth in this movie though I mean, her um, and Malkovich are masters, don't get me wrong, but, like, there's a, something a little stilted about just how 18th century this movie feels. Does it strike you that way? I One of the things I like about it is that when they are putting on faces, the two of them attempt slightly British accents, but when they are just arguing or saying things like, you know, Malkovich will walk into a room and be like, what is it you'd like me to do today? But then he'll start talking about like what, how bored he would be deflowering Cecile and be like, she'll be on her back in 10 seconds. Like they get more American the realer they get, which I appreciate. But I think Glenn's got a whole bunch of great lines. I got some here. Regret is an essential component of happiness. One does not applaud the tenor for simply clearing his throat, Noah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. And the line delivery, the, the tensest moment in any of these three movies is where they are staring at each other from across the room and John Malkovich is essentially saying, if you do not honor the bet I have won by having sex with me, I will rape you tonight. Do you want to do it on this purgatorial sofa or should we go somewhere? And he says, so tell me yes or no. And she takes the most pregnant pause in the world and says, war. (laughs) And I think that moment is better than the whole movie, The Wife. Yes or no. It's up to you, of course. I will merely confine myself to remarking that a no will be regarded as a declaration of war. A single word is all that's required. All right. War. Interesting. Yeah, that is a great scene. This movie has like a proper climax where... Yes. It's more who's afraid of Virginia Woolf and less like 10 things I hate about you, which right. is definitely a strength of it. But there's something just a little like fuddy-duddy about this movie for me. It like falls into that like just like classic 80s movies our parents were moved by kind of territory that ultimately is pretty boring. Do you have the same critique of Valmont? I think Valmont had a little bit more to offer. If I'm wow, being, I think that's crazy. If this I'm movie, being honest. This movie is a knife fight where they both metaphorically stab each other and bleed out in the end, and Valmont is like a BBC. But like, I thought Valmont was more competently made, whereas Dangerous Liaisons, like I just didn't think it was a well shot movie. And like its its beats are kind of strange and it has these like long, long tracking shots where it's just like people talking like this with things I only take away half of and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, okay, let's, 
you know, let's be a little bit slicker than this, you know, or if we're going to do that, like make it something visually interesting, which I feel like Valmont does. Like Milos mm. Foreman is good at creating like the feel of a like a, a great opera hall, you sure. know, whereas like Frears is like, point the camera that way and you guys walk this way and let's do it in like two or three takes. I'm thinking to argue with you, I want to single out two Freer shots though. One is at the very beginning where uh, Glenn Close is drinking in the morning and playing cards with their friend and this giant chandelier is on the floor and they're lighting the candles so they can pull it up for who? No but again, one? I didn't think that was like, it wasn't a well-filmed moment. It was like an interesting filmic moment, but it wasn't like, I feel like, I don't know, that uh, Foreman would have done something or even... But the, but the thing is Humble. that Foreman, but Foreman doesn't find Foreman wasn't looking for that moment. What I'm saying is that Frears is trying to find these moments where, as the end shows us, the makeup is half off. Now this is move. These are movies about people who are putting on battle armor, and what are they when that armor like slips just a little bit? That's the whole Glenn Close performance for me. That's the whole take on the French setting for me. Like it's telling that Foreman is like why don't we ride by a grove of trees for a little bit? And yes, it's much more beautiful and much more traditional and much more likely to win a cinematography award. But I think Frears' priorities are so much more psychological and claustrophobic. Okay. I mean, I had the same... Can you let me have that? You can have it. All right. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to hang it up somewhere? I'm gonna ha- I'm gonna I'm gonna pull this candle chandelier up for nobody, and I'm for gonna give this movie a good good. I liked it a lot. You think this movie is a good good? I thought this movie was so fucking boring. I think it's like sure the performances have like nice arcs to them, but like this can go along with a lot of like Merchant Ivory films. What are you talking about? This is so much more fucked up than a Merchant Ivory or, film, or like you know. Uh, uh, chariots of fire it's just like a i don't a get spectacular it. boring movie you're describing valmont you're not describing this movie no i kind of like the production value of valmont but that's what people would say about chariots of fire and <laughs> remains of the day i think this is a good bad chance i oh. think it's like a probably a well-made movie and like sure it has all the things you're talking about but like it it's icky a big a little b uh it's boring. You, you're not making sense, but I'll let's talk about Valmont. Stop making sense. <laughs> no, this is just I how want I you felt. to. I was watching this movie with Nick White. At the end of it, we were like, "Wow!" And we were went over like the 15 weird scenes that like showed a very creepy power dynamic. Yeah. And then we sort of agreed too that it was like pretty long, and like where it was controversial. Sure, it was like loud but otherwise it was just kind of like a weird relic of a movie Hmm, i feel like this whole this all three of these movies are interesting relics where 18th century french novels were interesting things to adapt sure like in the prime of the you know teen uprising of the late 90s and like as late 80s awards bait so let's talk about valmont which is the wyatt herb to dangerous liaisons tombstone it came out. I the agree. Next if year. you mean that Wyatt Earp's no. a superior film, <laughs> nobody fucking thinks that about either of these movies, except for you. Apparently, um, they actually like held off the release of Valmont because they're like, "Oh no, if we give it another six months, maybe people how, will like, go." Unlikely. How they, was like? 
how unlikely is it that two properties were being developed based on this obscure French novel from the 18th century? Pretty like, unlikely. I mean, Dante's Peak and Volcano, I understand. Volcanoes are constantly in our consciousness. But Volcanoes is like a cool, like, what if LA exploded? What if the small town exploded? You know, what if something rammed into the earth, deep impact in Armageddon? Right. Like, that's a, that's a big Hollywood ideal. But it's like, let's take this obscure 18th century novel that has, like, pretty questionable sexual politics, even for the late 80s, and, like, turn that into a vehicle for someone like Colin Firth or John right. Malkovich. It's weird. Um, but I think the lesson from the lesson from both is don't be second. But the lesson for sure in a more pronounced way is if you're going to be second, don't be the more staid version <laughs> of the story. Uh, you can argue against that. But like the the reviews and the box office returns indicate that Valmont took a beating. Oh, I mean, there's no way that you can be the second like six months later uh, Valmont movie. Valmont is interesting it uh milish forman as we mentioned is the director best known for amadeus and one flew over the cuckoo's nest uh this is him in 1989 so it's like five years after amadeus uh but pretty much the exact same period um yeah, it's sort of like just b-roll from amadeus in a lot of scenes i like accidentally watched amadeus last night so i've seen so many corsets and powdered wigs in the last like 48 hours why did you accidentally watch Amadeus on a Saturday night? <laughs> what is your life? It's good. I have a good life. Pretty <laughs> sweet life. Um, so this is just a much more straight up version of the story that sort of presupposes what if the evil deeds done by these people were like found in the text? Like instead of Glenn Close being this kind of 19th or excuse me 18th century like norma desmond character who's also like a puppet master for her you know sexual frankenstein's monster this movie is like oh what if annette benning actually got so offended by the fact that her lover was betrothed to a 15 year old that she took this step what if um like you know what i mean like the things are come by much more honestly and earnestly in this movie so like developed characterization like is something you're gonna say is a bad thing about this movie i didn't say that i'm describing what it's like it's sort of boring because it uses traditional values like characterization and (laughs) uh and plot and epilogue it's not this like dark fucked up like 18th century erotic thriller i think it's more fucked up because they allow um the Cecile character to be more of the protagonist of the back half of this movie. Hmm. What could persuade the most beautiful women of their time to sacrifice their faith? Did you like what you did with Monsieur de Valmont? You never stop, do you? Betray their families. When does your husband come back? Doesn't matter anymore. And surrender to the temptations of uncontrollable desire. There is but one possibility. Orion Pictures presents the new film from the Academy Award-winning director of Amadeus, Milos Forman's Valmont.
So Colin Firth is our Valmont. Annette Benning is our Marquise. Um, who else? Meg Tilly oh, is Meg uh, Tilly. Madame to do Tourvel. That's right. She's, She's the Michelle, uh, Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer and uh, right. Reese Witherspoon. Yeah. Meg Tilly is an interesting, an interesting choice for this role, I would say. I want to point out, though, that this movie has a challenge, um, which is that instead of it being about the evil deeds of sort of an unknowable character you come to know, in the sort of more forthright characterization that this movie attempts, it raises what I find to be more pokeable questions about like, wait, does what I've seen from that person like square with what they're about to do? Is that an overreaction? Like this, that's the challenge for the actors for Firth and Benning here. I think. I would agree that that is a challenge. I think a bigger challenge is that instead of having Keanu Reeves as your (laughs) harp player, uh, it has Henry Thomas, uh, who's Elliot from ET. That's right. Now, to think of Elliot from E.T. being like a sexual being that could challenge Colin Firth, who even in 2019 could get it. Yeah. Uh, Colin it's Firth just a, a, that's an impossible task. He's a dreamboat in this movie. He's so good looking and he's got this like evil side to him, yeah. which is smoldering. There's a lot of him like being soaking wet in ruffled shirts, and we are actually five years before BBC Pride and Prejudice here. Amazing. So he, he was trying that move for a while. There's a lot more consent in this movie, too, I would say. Like, even yeah. when he's kissing Feruza Balk's butt. Um, a body doubles butt. When he's kissing Cecile's butt, right. uh, she's kind of like, ooh, like, I'm going to keep writing this letter and I'm not going to say no. Which is like right. a better feeling than John Malkovich, the creepiest motherfucker that ever lived, coming into your bedroom and, like, chasing you serial killer style through this French mansion and then having the person say no specifically and then it cutting to him like eating some fruit. It's easier to watch. Um, <laughs> I don't think that... Uh, Isn't that one of the grading systems that we use on this podcast? <laughs> you're right. But then the other one is whether it makes sense. Is like, do I believe that uh, Valmont up to this point is the kind of person who would suddenly... He's got that whole scene... Uh, talking about juxtaposing sort of the, the the more patience I think this movie takes. I don't think it's a bad scene, uh, but he dances with all three women, uh, Tilly, Benning, and the Cecile character. Uh, and then he goes off and, uh, you know, assaults. It's still assault. The oh, Cecile. it's definitely still assault. <laughs> the Cecile character. And it's like, huh. But you could see a way in which she could be, like, consenting to it. You're right. Yes. Not but it was still, it's, yeah, it was still problematic. I'm not sure I believe doesn't, that this Valmont would want to do that. What? He doesn't want to pass the smell test? He likes no, being he on the line? No, I don't. This Valmont didn't make sense to me. He likes being two-day expired milk? This Valmont doesn't make sense to me that he would go and suddenly have sex with a 14-year-old. I mean, like, I didn't doubt it when, like, they're writing a letter and then, like, suddenly he's eating ass. Like, that made sense. Colin Firth why? is a sexual being. That's why you cast Colin Firth. I think it's really telling that originally they had cast David Duchovny in this role. Oh, yeah. If Milos Forman's vision for the Valmont character was someone that David Duchovny could conceivably play, it tells me a lot about like what this movie's angle is. Sure, do. sure. Um, this movie also, while we're talking about alternate casting, was going to cast Michelle Pfeiffer in the Marquise role. Right. In... Um, 
which made me think I would love to just see a version of Dangerous Liaisons where Michelle Pfeiffer plays every single role because I think she could actually do it. Um, yeah, it's we didn't even talk about the fact that her her Torvel is is a little odd. She might be better suited for the. Um, well, they also the script in Dangerous Liaisons is like, and then she died of a broken heart, and it's like, come on, like you're gonna give Michelle Pfeiffer like Pfeiffer dying of a broken heart? Like, what does that look like? Sweating and dying. <laughs> Sweating and dying. That's it. If you're looking for like the best adaptation of source material that makes it the most filmic thing possible, your uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, if you will, mm. of literary adaptations, I think the strongest one is Valmont. Because you can kind of like see the page in Cruel Intentions to its detriment. And I would say to Dangerous Liaisons too, there's like scenes in there you know that they only have is this like sort of winky, cute thing of like, this is based on a book from the 18th century. Ha <laughs> teens. So... Yeah, this one this feels one... competent in that way. It feels like it understands like what people go to the movies for, and like what is entertaining about a movie like this. Okay, I think that's fair. I think it also well, it's also longer and wanders a lot more. I want to push back on that. Oh, it's unforgivably long at the... two hours and seventeen minutes. While the nodding of dangerous liaisons can be hard to keep track of, you oh always God, yeah. understand on some level, like why they have like this person now needs to to careen over here before this part of the gambit is up in this one. uh, You know, they'll be out in the country and Colin Firth will be like, so where did, uh, where did Meg Tilly go? And someone will be like, "Ah, she left. And he's like, Oh, I better ride my horse for a while. Like it's kind of like if I didn't, if I hadn't watched two movies that were based on this book, I wouldn't understand like why he needs to go after her now. And with such ferocity, you know, I like the horse part. I like when he like the like river seems sort of deep too when he gets all wet. It looked great. I like uh-huh. that. Mm-hmm. I think this movie is an easy. Oh God, I don't know an easy. Maybe it's also. What would you say? You're gonna say. You're gonna say good bad. Of course I am. Yes. I don't know what to say because I don't want to give a movie like this a good good i think they're all terrible in the way that like why would you adapt why would you adapt such a horrible novel to be three movies that what what is the fascination here like i don't i don't get that underlying thing so that's like a check against this all three of these movies but i guess this one like as an adaptation and as like a piece of cinema it's a good good. Hmm. Rewatchable? I don't know. I guess the only one I did rewatch was I think this intention. is this is an easy you good know? bad, dude. Maybe it's good bad too, but I think yeah. it's more good bad than Dangerous Liaisons. You think it's you think it's better. That's clear. I think it's better. Okay. Um I think that Annette we can't get out of here without talking about Annette Benning. Because uh, I think that she's really, really good in this movie, um, and she's somebody I think about a lot in relation to Glenn Close, because um, they're sort of like around the same age, um, but but they're totally different actors. You know, like Glenn Close is somebody who constantly acts 
through irony. And I don't mean that she's winking at the audience, but every time that character gets hurt, she's more dangerous. The more beautiful she looks, the uglier she is inside. You know, like right. Glenn Close is always into those like those peaks and valleys of like, you have no idea what's coming next. And Annette Benning is such an earnest performer. Um, yeah. And, I don't know that I'm ever scared of Annette Benning. No, like, no, I don't like think you're maybe, supposed to be. And I don't think I've ever been scared. You know, I think like Glenn Close has this reputation that she'll do like anything can happen. Like she'll boil a bunny rabbit by the end of yeah. this movie. Yeah, yeah. You know, whereas like even Annette Benning's like nastiest role, maybe somewhere around American Beauty or something. Like you're still not afraid of her. You just kind of feel bad about stuff. And I feel like this one, it's the same. Well, what this one lacks teeth, maybe. Maybe that's what you don't like about this one, because I w- you're never really afraid of either Annette Benning or her character. I think that's part of it. I recognize that she's really good. I love her. Um, I think that the scene where she uh, is so smart, where Colin Firth comes back to be like, I had sex with Torvald, so now I get to have sex with you. And she's like, well, you don't actually want to do that, do you? And they have this whole fight, and he's just like, I won the bet, I won the bet. And she, in silence, goes to the bed, spreads her legs as though about to give birth, and like starts to read a book, as if to be like, if, if it's this transactional to you, go ahead, like, fuck off. Is such a, she's so wonderful in that moment. Where yeah. she's not wonderful is where she has to do the Glenn Close thing in the end, and she laughs maniacally at him, and it's like, you don't, you, this is not an Annette Benning move. Right. It was a similar move to um, Jennifer Lawrence in Red Sparrow. Remember that? I do. I remember that movie I did not like, but that you said was one of the top 10 best of 2018. You're crazy I stand person. by that. You're a crazy person. I stand by that. I thought that movie was masterful. I think you found me out. I think what I don't like about this movie is it doesn't have teeth. If we're asking what is the fascination with this weird, like... Yeah, what is n- the draw to this property? Like, I think it's... I think Do you it, like it? Do you like all three of the that these movies exist in the world? I like Dangerous Liaisons. I really have no use for Cruel Intentions after this. Um, Valmont, I think, is interesting, but really just will forever be in the shadow of DL. I think the thing that people are interested in, Noah, frankly, and why this was adapted, is uh, just wickedness. Different shades of unknowable wickedness, which more than all the sexual politics, is just not really something that we're interested in in 2019. I think when we shape our villains, we shape them around, uh, we often shape them around nihilism. We often shape them around giving them a reason. We don't often shape them around like, this person is just this way and sadists are sometimes born not made. Uh, It feels out of fashion. Um, I'm interested yeah. in it, but I but won't. But it's so similar to the favorite, though. That's your your read on the favorite. I don't understand. That's not that's not what's happening in the favorite. You don't think people like the wickedness of people, and that's like why the favorite is a movie that people like just to see people be mean to each other. That's just not mm. something that draws me, man. And this you, too, I'm just really not that interested in like cruelty, French costume dramas. Oh, okay, sure, or costume dramas of any kind. Mm-hmm. Really like anything before Gosford Park and you've lost me. <laughs> oh man. Uh that's unfortunate for the for the merchant ivory category I want to do coming up. Oh god. Um anything before Gosford Park and you've lost me. <laughs> okay, so yeah, uh weird category. I didn't I'm I'm sorry that the movies were not like uh didn't hold up quite as well, but 
This was an interesting corner that I never would have explored otherwise. May never well, explore again. When you live and die by the construct of three movies of a very very specific <laughs> genre, I think that Sometimes these things are die. bound to happen. Sometimes you do three movies based on the same stupid, obscure, 18th century French dirty novel. There you go. When you put it like that, though, I kind of want to do the category again. <laughs> let's come back to it in another 20 years like it's been 40 years since uh, cruel intentions where are we (laughs) um so speaking of we don't really do this but we can shout it out now we're doing a military heist on our next show triple frontier three i thought that was a good one and kelly's heroes yeah it was a good category so if you want to uh be ready for that please get ready um Thanks to Abby Bender for coming on the show. Uh, check out her work. She's a great Twitter follow as well. The Playlist Podcast Network, please like and subscribe. Both the Playlist shows and our individual feed are now on Spotify if you want to get your shows that way. Give us a rating. Is that a give, thing people should do? I think it is. I've rated um, a few things. It's not that difficult. No. And it's also not difficult to give nice ratings. Keep it to yourself if you don't like us. Um, I, I'll take some constructive feedback. But not in a rating that will lower our rating. Just if, what, what else? What other forum exists? Mail Noah if you want. Write him a letter. <laughs> if you, uh, I'll give you my home like address. You can write me at home. Perfect. Um, well, my friend, sir, you, what do you? How do you want to set up the song that you've chosen to send us off today? Did you know, Chance, that there what? is not only three but four uh, adaptations of? the original source material that we discussed today, the three mm-hmm. movies, Dangerous Liaisons, Falmon, and Cruel Intentions. What's the fourth? Okay, possibly the be. fourth one is, in fact, found in the musical stylings of one Jason Mraz. So we'll take you out, or let, let you out, let you off here at the end with... The straight is saying.